0: Heavenly Father, Lord God, we we thank you for this, this time of year, this season where we're reminded and our focus is drawn toward the incarnation of your Son Jesus. Lord, we thank you for your word that teaches us your plan and your purpose. We thank you that we have the freedom in this country to to freely and without fear uh, come to it. And we pray that we would not, not forget that privilege, but would embrace it. Lord, we ask now as we as we enter into this Advent season that our, that our hearts would not be just focused on Sunday mornings, but we would keep that focus and think on these truths through the week and all the way up until Christmas, when we can celebrate the the Son of God stepping into creation again. Lord, soften our hearts, we might hear Your Word the pages of scripture we just pray this in your precious and holy son jesus name. like i said turn to jeremiah chapter 33 again we'll be looking at 14 to 16 behold the days are coming declares the lord is our righteousness. So today is the first Sunday of Advent. And again, we'll kind of follow a pattern of the lectionary, and we'll be looking at, in particular, we're going to look at some Old Testament passages that kind of clue us in or, or... turn our attention towards the coming of this this character, this character who we call Jesus the Christ. Today we're in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a prophet. And outside of uh, looking at Obadiah four or five years ago, something like that, uh, we've never actually studied a prophetic book on Sunday mornings. We studied, I think, on a Wednesday night we went through Hosea and a few other things. But and so because because of that, we have to take just a, a tiny bit of time to understand the literature of prophecy. And there's a literally an endless amount of things that I could tell you, but I'll I'll focus my attention on the things, two things that I think are relevant to what we're what we're looking at today. Number one the prophets are not like the other books in that they're, they're more of a collection of works than they are a singular event. So Romans, for example, is a letter in the New Testament. It's likely that Paul and Tertullus, who, who actually was the, the scribe who wrote it down, Paul just dictates to him. probably sat down one evening and hammered that out. Maybe two. I would say at the most, maybe a week. But but it was a, a singular event. Meaning meaning in some in some sense it's like it's like me getting up and preaching a sermon. Right? It's that, that that thing happened this week. Okay, and then it was done and gone. He sent it away, and the rest is history, right? And it's not like maybe the gospels or, or Genesis, which are stories, which tell a, tell a story, and, and maybe it took time to put that story together. But it was still kind of, in, 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 in a lot of senses, it was still one movement. Meaning the story kind of follows a linear pattern, and, and the likelihood is it was written at once, like a person who is going to write a book. Right? If a person writes a book, maybe it takes them six months, but it's their task. I hope that makes, I hope that makes it. The prophets are different in that, especially the longer ones, which we call the major prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And Daniel is kind of its own little thing. But especially the major prophets, these are a collection of the sermons, the letters, what other people maybe have said about them that span really their entire ministry. And from period of time to the next period of time to the next period of time, the message that is given by the prophets changes or morphs or or moves to a new subject. So it'd be more like, say, C. S. Lewis, who wrote lots and lots of books, if we would collect his works together into a multi-volume series, right? That would be what the prophets are more like. And so when we study the prophets, it would depending on what part of the, the story we're in, the context changes. So for for Jeremiah's case, when you go before chapter 33, almost chapter 32 and previous, the message is doom and destruction, simply put. But then in chapter 33, the message really fundamentally changes. And it fundamentally changes because Jeremiah now has a new task. He's now going to talk to a new group of people. In a way, a new group of people. Really, it's the same people just down the road. Which leads me to the next point that's very, very important for us to understand. The prophets, most of the time we think of prophets, or when we read the prophetic books of the, of the Old Testament and, and, and even Revelation, what we most associate with prophecy is foretelling the future. So when we talk about prophecy, or if I talk to you about prophecy, most of you, the first thing that you think about is when Jesus returns. Like Matt said, Jesus is going to come back, and that's far off in the future, right? Ninety-eight percent of all the prophetic literature in Scripture, which there's a lot. You got the five major, or the four, excuse me, the four major prophets. Then you got twelve minor prophets, and then what you have the earlier prophets or the 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 soon pro, or not the soon pro, the earlier prophets that was the right word in Nehemiah and Ezra, so a lot of the Old Testament is actually prophetic literature, but all the prophets are actually doing is they're taking the word of God as they know it and they're applying it to the current situation. So Isaiah, for example, Isaiah almost almost the entirety of Isaiah's writing is a commentary on the book of Deuteronomy. Which for for Isaiah was the scripture. Deuteronomy was the main text. That was the thing that you went to to know what God was saying to our culture. And and Isaiah's task given to him by God was to take Deuteronomy and the, the truths found in it and apply it to the people at that particular time. The only exception to that is when they're talking about this particular time, meaning... Today, tomorrow, next week, and the next generation. Now most of the time, the next generation is coming from a passage that we're going to look at today. So when Jeremiah speaks, Jeremiah's ministry lasts almost his entire life. He's called at a very young age. God tells him, don't let anybody look down on you because of your youth. Which probably puts him in his late teens, maybe 17, 18 years old. He is not legally allowed to speak with authority in, into his culture until he's 30. And God says, no, you're going to speak into your culture, and, and people are going to, well, nobody's going to listen to you, but, but they're going to listen to you. Nobody's going to obey you, or nobody's going to change because of your words, which is a bad thing for God to say to somebody who's going to preach their whole life. You're going to preach your whole life, and nobody's going to listen to you. In fact, they're going to hate you because you're going to say it to you. Anyway, different, different subject. So, so maybe from the age, let's just, let's just say 18. For about 50 to 60 years, Jeremiah lives a fairly decent life before the fall of Judah to Babylon when he flees. 50 years? Let's go on the light end of things. 40 years? Jeremiah preaches. And that's what the book of Jeremiah is. is his collected works. And for the first ten years or so, his message was based on Deuteronomy, based on Leviticus, that if you don't stop sinning against God, He is going to raise up a lead, or raise up an, a, a foe against you, and they're going to conquer you. You're going to be destroyed because of your wickedness, because of your 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 turning away from Me. One of the most common things I think said in the in the law of, of God in the Old Testament is, is that if you follow after me, I will be your God and you will be my people. It's, a, it's sort of a, a summation statement that God uses again and again in the book of Deuteronomy and in Leviticus. If you follow me, I will be your God. But if you don't, I'm going to raise up leaders to punish and probably better put, to discipline you. Not to abandon you, but to correct you, to draw your attention back to me. When you think you can accomplish it on your own, you're far less likely to look to God for help and support. If I have a good enough job, if I have a good enough uh, family life, if I have a good enough anything secular, worldly, I don't look to God for my help and support. But when the rug is pulled out from underneath me, when I no longer have a good Job, right? I no longer live in a, a society that's free. I'm going to much quick, much more quickly look to God for my help and support because it's all I have to. The people of Israel, for a very long time, had turned away from God. Contextually speaking, we're talking about Jude, or Jeremiah. He's talking to the southern kingdom of, of Judah. And when I say the southern kingdom, historically speaking, God Saul, David and then Solomon are the first three kings of Israel. And they, they rule what's called the United Kingdom, meaning all 12 tribes of Israel are, are one nation. Picture the 13 colonies in the United States becoming the United States. The term United States means there's 13 states that are now becoming united. Right? It's, it's very simple, actually. you think about it literally, That's essentially what happened. But then after Solomon, there's this strife between one of Solomon's sons, and I think his general, and he's like, he's like, no, this isn't how we should lead. And then there's this division. Ten tribes in the north, two tribes in the south. North becomes Israel, south becomes Judah. In about 711, 711 BC, before Christ, Assyria comes, conquers the northern kingdom. Then they come to the door, or the doorstep of Judah, and they're knocking. They're like, we're coming in. We're going to rule you. And there's a bunch of prophets who are speaking to the people of Judah, and they're like, "Look, you got it. We got to straighten up. We got to stop sinning against God. We got to throw out the bales. We got to throw out these idols. We got to get rid of it. We got to clean ourselves up. We got to turn our focus back on God. Or we're going to be destroyed by the Assyrians." And, and surprisingly, the people of Judah—that's what they do, at least somewhat. And so God raises up Babylon, stops the Assyrian assault. And for about 100 years, there's a little bit of peace. And then the people of Israel, again, they turn their backs on God, and God raises up Babylon to come and conquer them in the late 6th century. I guess it would technically be the early 6th century. About 580s, 590s, B.C. Babylon is knocking at the door, and Jeremiah is given this charge. Tell the people of Israel what they're doing wrong that they need to change. And Jeremiah has this terrible task. Basically, you're going to tell them, they're not going to listen, but you need to tell them anyway. Isn't, isn't that kind of show us God's mercy? God is so merciful to us that, that even when He knows that we're not going to actually listen to Him, He still tells us. Like God's doing this to us all the time. He's constantly... The spirit of God is constantly in our ear telling us man, you've got to change. And what do we do? Turn the body down. So Jeremiah is given this message and he, he is hated for it. Many people actually think whenever whenever Isaiah says he talks about the, the suffering servant, he's actually talking about the man Jeremiah. Now there's a secondary meaning to that, but Jeremiah, he suffers, he suffers hatred and ridicule. Jeremiah chapter twenty is one of my favorite passages of scripture. Twenty verse nine is my, is like my, pastor verse. He he turns to God. He like, I can't believe you deceived me into preaching this message. This is horrible. I hate it. Jeremiah twenty verse nine. He says, I'm weary of telling the people. I don't want to anymore. But I, I can't hold it in. I must. It's a fire pent up in my bones, and I must, I must let it out. And he goes on for many more years, probably another 10, 15, 20 years, and he preaches this message again and again and again and again. Now, sometimes this kind of gets confusing for us, and I want to make sure I emphasize what this is what this actually is actually is. We went through the book of, of Romans, and Romans has a pretty serious, a pretty, pretty specific message, right? It's 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 not very varied. You know, if you would study the book of of Corinthians, there's, there's a lot of different topics and things that are floating around. Yeah, there's a main message. Romans is pretty focused. That is not what I mean when I say he preached the same message. Meaning he preached the same thing. Or he was saying the main point again and again, just in different ways. No, that's not what he was doing. Essentially, Jeremiah had a manuscript. Now, maybe he had an actual manuscript. Probably not. It was probably just... A repetition of the same sermon again and again and again for 10, 15, 20 years. Repent or be destroyed. Trying to simplify that. Now imagine for a minute, we've all heard about, about preachers, you know, way back in the 50s and the 60s. Way back in the 50s and 60s. Sorry. Who would stand on soapboxes and on the street and they would preach these sermons of doom and gloom and try to get people to turn away from their sin? Right, With, you know, you hear about these people and you go, oh, "Yeah, they were on that street corner probably for months at a time." Imagine this for years at a time—the same man getting up every single day and preaching the same message again and again and again. You're sinners, turn away from God. You'd start to hate him too, especially if you didn't believe him, if you thought you were all right, if you thought you were all good. This is the first generation that Jeremiah speaks to, people who won't listen. People who won't listen until destruction happens. And then like all of us, we start to open up our eyes. I think probably most of us have experienced this in some level or another where we get a little bit get a little bit arrogant. Start to think to ourselves, I got this. You know, you've been at your job for a year or two, and you're like, yeah, "I got this." And then all of a sudden, you don't. It's kind of what we're talking about here. People of Israel, people of Judah, they're walking around, they going, "We got this, we got this." And then all of a sudden, Babylon comes in, smashes them with a with an iron rod, burns the the city to the ground, destroys the temple. The temple in the in the people of Israel, or people of Judah's mind could never be destroyed because God is the God. He's there's no other like him. He's the Almighty. He certainly can't be destroyed. And then all of a sudden, everything's gone. The, the rug had literally been ripped out from underneath him. Many of them are hauled away from Jerusalem all the way across to another part of the world in Babylon. This is who Jeremiah is speaking to in chapter 33, verses 14 to 16. Now, he said this message before the destruction. But it wasn't for the people before the destruction. It was for the people after the destruction. Once their eyes started to open back up, once their necks were no longer so stiff and stubborn, and they started to look around and they started to say, Where's God? This is what we call the message of hope within every single prophet. Basically, the pattern of prophets is message A, destruction. Message B, God is still there. We see it in the first verse here, in verse 14. It says, Behold, the days are coming. Now, this is another one of them phrases, maybe a a Hebrewism. In the prophets that you see repeated a lot, the days are coming. This clues us into Jeremiah is not talking to the people he's actually talking to. He's talking to the people in the future. Not 2,000 years future, but one generation future. The people who, who he's saying, you're going to be the ones destroyed if you're still living. When you're in destruction, this is who Jeremiah is talking to. Behold, the days are coming. That word behold in Hebrew is one of my favorite Hebrew words. It's hene. It's called a precedence of existence. We don't have a very good translation. Behold is boring. "Hineh" is not. Every time, every time I come across this, I have to tell you guys this because I don't want you to forget it. "Hineh" is like, it's like when when you're dozing off and I come in the room and I go, Hey! I got some of you. You even knew it was coming. That's what it is. It's pay attention. and It is not passive. It's active. It's P-A-L is what the term is, what the tense is. It's exciting. It's the difference between walk and and run, or probably walk and sprint. Right, we're doing the same action. In in Hebrew, it's the same verb. It's just in a different tense. It's in a it's in an active, excited tense. Behold is hey, there comes a day. Or there, let me say it the right way: the day is coming. See, the message before this is a message that Jeremiah doesn't want to preach, but he has to. Right? It's a fire pent up in his bones. But this message, oh, Jeremiah's like, yeah, I get to behold an A. Unfortunately, nobody's going to listen to even this message. Not yet, at least. A day is coming, declares the Lord. There are three phrases in this that just should should everybody's ears should be turned. Behold, there comes a day, And declares Yahweh. When God speaks, listen. I'm not gonna ask you to listen, I'm gonna tell you to listen. When God speaks, listen. He says there comes the day is the day is coming. The days are coming when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Okay, we've got to jump back historically. About five, six hundred years to King David. David is described as the man after God's own heart, but he's a bonehead, just like you and I. He is a sinner. Right. And all the time we go, oh yeah, he 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 slept with Bathsheba and he he had a you know a child and, and he kills her husband. He's a sinner. Well, yeah. But he did a lot of other things that were sinful. When we say that David is a man after God's own heart, we don't mean that David was like God in his perfection. We mean that David was after God. He was trying to get to God. He, he, his desire was not a kingdom for himself. His desire was a kingdom for God. His desire was that he would only be the mouthpiece. He would only be the mediator between God and his people. When David stood on the, or sat on the throne as king, he was not king. God was king through his life and actions. And because of this, God comes to David and says, Look, I'm going to make a covenant between, between me and you. It's called the Davidic covenant. And God says that one of your descendants will be on the throne of Israel forever. And sometimes we read that and we think, OK, that means that there's going to be a successive lineage of, of descendants of David who are going to rule in his place. And for many years, for five, six, seven hundred years even, that was the case where there was a king who was a descendant of David who sat on a throne in Israel, or in Judah better. But that's not what God's promise was. His promise was that there would be a descendant, a descendant, who would come in the future, who would sit on the throne of Israel and who would reign and rule, not just for a span of a normal human's life, but for all eternity. I love the fact that Matt, Read that passage out of Isaiah this morning. That wasn't planned, by the way. What was, it was God's plan. It's such a perfect picture of what we're talking about. This king that's going to reign, he's going to rule forever and ever. Verse 15. In those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Righteous branch. Simplify things. Offspring. David. Who won't be it who won't be a king like David was? He'll be the king that David desired to be. He will truly execute justice. Wickedness won't have freedom and reign and rule like it does today. And he will establish righteousness because it's one thing to punish wickedness. It's another thing to replace wickedness with goodness. You see, the people of Israel, they had been been led by these, these kings. And a few of them, a number of them, were all right they led the people in paths of righteousness they, they upheld the laws of the old testament they led the people away from from idol worship and sinfulness but if we were to if we were to describe the kings from david until this point as a whole unit we'd say they failed and 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 for the people of israel who are hearing this message again in babylonian captivity they failed Not just partially, but entirely. Their king had completely failed them to lead them and to guide them into into paths of righteousness, into paths of God's protection. Instead, they had weak, inferior kings who didn't seek after God and who ultimately led them into this destruction. This king who will come, this descendant, this branch of David will execute justice and righteousness in the land. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? sounds exciting, especially as you see the destruction around you, especially as you think about, think about how everything around me seems to have collapsed. In the first part of 16, it goes on a little bit, and it says in those days, Judah will be saved. Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely we live in a very interesting time don't we where we we recognize like Matt said earlier that there's kind of two parts to these prophets who talk about Jesus there's the baby's going to be born. And then off in the future, he will have the government upon his shoulders, the Prince of Peace, the wonderful counselor. We see that that's somewhere in the future. And then we look at a passage like this and we hear this message we and we can in some sense, we can relate to, to being in a position of complete destruction, to looking around and all the things that I held held as my support and my, my help and my defense, they're all gone. And to, and to feel that sense of hope that there is still yet a king to come. We get that. But at the same time, we didn't fully recognize it in Jesus in his first coming. And so what do we do with this? How do we understand this? I think that sometimes we forget that we live in this already, but not yet. Last week was Christ is King Sunday, and I tried to do my best to emphasize and to show us that it's Christ is King now, not just in the future. If we would turn back to that passage, I don't have it up on the screen, and if you want to turn there in your Bibles, you can, but you don't have to. I'm just going to read it here in in the book of Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter one verses the second part of five and then six says to him who who loves us and who has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom priest to God his God and Father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever amen did you catch that he made us his kingdom. We have a president in the United States, right? You've all taken social studies. You understand our system. The president is supposed to be a representation of his people. That's the grand experiment. That our, our top person in our country is not in himself an individual who others should be like, but he should be like us. This is completely foreign. Was completely unique in the world at the time. A king, a king is not a representation of his people, but the people, its citizens, his citizens were supposed to be a representation of the king. This is true of, of Queen Elizabeth, that's, or that's what it's supposed to be. That's why she still exists. I mean, not the person, but like the position. Still exists. She is supposed to be a representation of what all British people are supposed to strive to be. Honorable and above reproach. and All the things that actually scripture calls us to be. We are Christ's kingdom. We are his citizenship. And he does rule and reign now. Now not to the same extent That he will when he comes back, Revelation chapter 19, with a sword and flames coming out of his eyes and a robe tipped in blood on a white horse coming for complete annihilation of all things wicked. That's a king that we recognize, right? And yes, that will be exciting. But there is a kingdom right now in existence right now that is ruled and reigned by King Jesus. And we are his citizens. And we are called by our relationship to him as his citizens to be his representation in the world. This is why Jesus in Matthew 28 says, go, therefore, into all the world and make disciples, go out and make more citizens to mirror our King Jesus. Isn't that good and exciting and terrifying that you, feeble, broken human that you are, are to be a mere representation of your King Jesus? I think it is. And I tremble every time I realize how much I've failed him. But this is the beauty of what Christmas is. Anybody ever watch a Christmas movie? Yeah. None of you want to admit it, but you all have. I am married to my wife, and so that must mean I watch them daily. Don't no. even in here to defend yourself. You know, every every Christmas movie has one one message. That this season we should all be the best people that we can be. And most of those movies are not Christian. But that message could not be more Christian. The message of Christ re-entering into creation is the most beautiful story when you think about how it affects our lives. I started saying this last week, and I'm sure I'll mention it again as we continue on in this Advent season, that there's this, there's this picture that happens in the incarnation of Christ, in God becoming man again. Genesis chapter one: God creates heaven and earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, which is a, another Hebrewism, which which means everything, all things physical, all things spiritual. God created them both. Heaven is the presence of God, and when God created them, those two spheres of of in, or of, of reality were completely overlapping. What is it? A Sven diagram? Is that the right word? Venn, what Venn diagram? Not Sven. A Venn diagram: two circles. They completely overlapped. Everything in earth was in God's heavenly sphere. And and so in Genesis chapter 2, we see God walking in the cool of the evening with Adam. God himself walking with Adam. And then Genesis 3 happens. And what happens? Complete separation. Sin happens. And God's sphere of influence, his, his circle in the Venn diagram, is completely removed. If you've ever heard me talk about the Bible Project, they have a video on heaven and earth. It's a great video. Go watch it. That separation, what does that lead to? It leads to it leads to sin against man, it leads to sin against family, it leads to sin against against civilization, all the way to Genesis chapter six, verse five. A passage that I quote all the time. That every intention of the thought and the hearts of man was only evil continually. Complete destruction when God is not part of his creation. And then God, like the picture of, of God in, in Adam, Michelangelo, Sistine Chapel, I think. Reaches out and touching his finger. That's what God does with Adam, or with Abraham, excuse me. He reaches out, he, put, he interjects himself back into creation, but that's not where it gets really good. It gets really good whenever God becomes Christ. When he puts on flesh and dwells among man, and you know what he does? He walks in the cool of the evening with his disciples. That's not accidental. The incarnation of Christ means that God's presence, his presence, Heaven, now again, dwells on earth. And you might ask the question, well, didn't Jesus go back? Yes, for a time. But he sent who? His helper. Who daily walks in your heart, lives in your hearts, lives in your lives, changes and morphs the way you think about the world that you live in. And it gives you the even slightest ability to be God's citizens in this season of Advent, in this season of hopeful anticipation for the message of the incarnate God, Christ Jesus. We stand firmly and fixed upon this truth that Christ is indeed our King and we are His citizens who will live our lives by the power of the Spirit as His citizens and we can look around at our world, and we can say, oh, I wish things would change. Good. You're the change. You're Christ's kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we we are humbled. We are humbled by your reign and rule. Lord, we ask that your spirit would fill us this week, this season, and for the rest of our lives with a passion, a determination, a drive, to be as best we can representations of our king. Lord, we thank you that your your son is not a king like David. Not a king like his descendants. But is the king David truly wanted to be. Righteous. Holy. Upright. We thank you that he will enact... Justice and righteousness, and we thank you that he enacts that justice and righteousness even now through his citizens. And Lord, we look to you and we know that your name, his name, is that Yahweh is righteous. God is good. Father, we thank you and we praise you for your son, Jesus. We pray this in his precious and holy name.